Ladies and gentlemen, today is the 40th episode of the Brown Enough podcast. I have had 40 opportunities to speak with incredible bodies of culture, to put the pool of brown genius on blast. It has been an incredible, incredible journey. I feel wildly lucky to have done that. Simultaneously, I know that we live in an absolutely insane time right now. I know 12 people alone who have been laid off from their jobs in all sorts of different fields. Institutions are sort of crumbling. Art institutions are really troubled financially. It is a hard and wild and chaotic time. That said, uh, me and this company, Stitcher, have decided that we will go our separate ways after this episode. And what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful journey it has been. 40 episodes with y'all to build community, to build a sangha, to build love, to share genius. And so I want to thank each and every one of you who listened, who tuned in. I want to thank uh, future listeners uh, who are showing up right now. This is not so much a goodbye as a see you later. Uh, sometimes we have to ask what stories must die so new ones can grow. And so this is a cheers to new growth. This is an opportunity for new things for all of us, uh, myself included, for Stitcher, for y'all listening. And I want to thank you. And I want to thank everyone who came on this show. And uh, I wanted to leave you with this last episode with you, with your voice, with the community, with the listeners, because the show it was never really about me. It was about brownness. It was about identity. It was about being seen. It was about spaces of belonging. And I hope that's what we made. I'm pretty sure that is what we made. All the way back when we did uh, 10 episodes about Ruby Rosa, the Dominican James Bond. Uh, it has been an incredible journey. It has been an incredible uh, year with y'all. And uh, I'm going to leave you with your voices, not mine, because this is what it's all about. And so if you felt seen and you felt like you belonged, then thank you for being here. Uh, and yeah, you'll see more of me. You know, you know where to find me. Hit me up. Uh, talk to me. Let me know your stories. Much love and many blessings uh, from my heart to your heart. We've covered a wide range of topics here on Brown Enough. Many of these topics have resonated with y'all. It's brewed up thoughts, memories, conversations, emotions, all sorts of feelings that make you reflect about your identity. And today, we're going to share those messages you sent over to us. So for the uh, final time, for now, let's go deep and share space and stories about representation, identity, learning to embrace and love ourselves and each other. As you know, my name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Here we go, y'all. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. 
Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. If you've been listening to the very first episode of this podcast, or even my documentary, Rubirosa, y'all know about my love and appreciation with the actor John Leguizamo, who is now having his moment 40 years into his career. Because sometimes we just got to keep going. Resilience, y'all. He is one of the biggest inspirations in my life. Uh, he wrote the foreword for my book. What a blessing. He's one of the many reasons I am a performer and do what I do today. And his show Freak is what really set it off for me. Latino people in the house bark. That's my people. When I saw Freak, it gave me a glimpse of a future I could have. One I hadn't contemplated yet in my young life. One of our listeners told us of a similar experience. Annette, like myself, felt represented when she saw a Broadway show written by one of the most talented people in our community. Y'all know him, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hey, it's Annette Fernandez. And when I went to see In the Heights on Broadway and heard 96,000 I uh, immediately fell in love and uh, knew that I had to figure out who this person was that, that wrote the show. And then to find out that it was the uh, Manuel Miranda who grew up uptown like me and uh, went to Wesleyan and I went to Trinity and here's a person that could identify with my story, but then was also representing a place that I love and the places that I'm from. So here's this person taking up space in musical theater, you know, something that I loved and was only exposed to because of the education and the access and the privilege that I had. Um, But that came at a cost too because we were taken out of our community to do that. So. I just want to shout out with Manuel, shout out Uptown in Washington Heights, the place that I love and I know he loves too. And how could you not? Because it's one of the greatest places in New York. Another listener, Andrea, said she first saw her family dynamic reflected on TV when she was about 17. It was Jane the Virgin for me to see a Latino family Venezuelans as well, on camera, and a beautiful family that was so unidos and a family that was different, let's say. The parents weren't together. Me growing up, my parents weren't together, and my father came out as gay when I was three, and I lived with my mother, but my father had his partner of 16 years, and in my heart, I just knew my family was always different. And when I was able to see that in Jane the Virgin in a in a different way, but it also felt very relatable and very much <laughs> beautiful. Like it felt that no matter what was going on within the family, there was always love and there was always respect and support for one another. And through that, 
I did some research and became in love with Gina Rodriguez's work. And that led me on a trajectory that I am incredibly grateful for. Because of her, I went to Atlantic Acting School and I pursued a career in the arts and of storytelling. And for me, that's the power of television and film and of storytelling in general is that you can touch lives of people that are so far away and would otherwise have never heard a story that genuinely is their, it's almost their own. So I'm very grateful for the medium that we work in and the world that we live in that's able to tell these stories that are, are needed to be told. This next message comes from someone who saw themselves for the first time through a character played out on a popular Disney Channel show. The first memory of seeing someone who remotely resembled me or a version of me was the character Miranda on Lizzie McGuire. She was portraying a brown character and I remember she had this like edgy, different style and and seemed to not care about what others thought of her, which was inspiring because all I cared about was how my white community around me would think of me. I mean, how I looked. I had big bushy eyebrows and bushier hair. How I dressed very conservatively because of my Muslim upbringing, even how I smelt because of the delicious Pakistani lunches my mom would pack for me, and how I talked because my shyness from being an immigrant got in the way of my real personality coming out. And I think the character Miranda was important for me to see as a kid because She gave me someone to feel seen through. And after that, I remember Slumdog Millionaire coming out in American cinema. And that was such a huge part of me gaining the pride back of the part of the world I came from. I mean, to see people who look like you and speak the same language as you on the screen is life-changing. I mean, when I saw Frida Pinto as a leading lady in Hollywood, it subconsciously programmed my mind into thinking that I could be that too. And not only that, it allowed me to see myself and my brown skin as beautiful. Because as a teenager, seeing yourself as beautiful or handsome is hard enough But adding that extra layer of having no one who looks like you at the forefront of magazines, movies, television, music, I mean, it really makes it extra hard to accept and love the skin that you're in and your physical appearance. And I now feel very lucky and proud of the fact that I can be a Pakistani brown woman who played a leading leading role on a network and that has never had a Pakistani leading lady on it before, um, as far as I know. And I hope that these numbers can rise and more beautiful brown humans can grace the silver screen so more young brown teenagers can see themselves as worthy and as beautiful and to take up space just as they are and that being enough. That was actress Nida Kershid from CW's The Winchesters. How dope is that? 
another person who, like me, is living out their dreams of acting and not just admiring the people on the screen, but becoming an example for the next generation. So I have really loved hearing from y'all, but a lot of you also wrote down your thoughts. You sent us emails. Mario is of Puerto Rican and Italian descent. Raised in Brooklyn, New York, he has always been attuned to racial dynamics, experiencing racial hostility and a sense of not belonging at a very young age. But he always found comfort being around his Latin American roots, which is why when he saw the actor Benicio del Toro, one of the greats, win the Oscar for his role in the film Traffic, he felt a sense of pride and happiness. He also saw parts of his life reflected in two particular films. Here's what he wrote to us. You may find interesting that as a teenager, I saw myself in two films, American Me and Blood In, Blood Out, two films that explore the Mexican-American Los Angeles experience. Coincidentally, both of the main characters are mixed with white fathers and Mexican mothers. Seeing Edward James Almos as a cool and stoic leader and the shared identity of his inner circle was indeed appealing. The films explored the deeply complicated and sometimes emotionally wrenching aspects of living racially mixed in a racist society. The character in Blood In, Blood Out spoke of his white father attempting to erase the Mexican identity that existed within him. An experience I and many racially, ethnically, or religiously mixed people unfortunately have to deal with as children. There is so much to say about this topic, and perhaps a good topic for your show, which is... The extent at which a white parent will not fully accept or even attempt to understand and connect with their brown child or partner with which they had the child with. I am sure this exists even within the brown community, with cross-racial or cultural relationships, but I am speaking about my experience. Mario, thank you so much for sending us this message and opening up your heart so beautifully and honestly. Now, y'all know we love all the arts on this show. It's not just visual arts. I'm talking TV, drama, movies, plays that inspired you. Carla told us that when she hears El Costo de la Vida, a song written by the Dominican icon Juan Luis Guerra, she thinks about her own brownness and identity. When I first moved to the United States and I crossed the border with my mom, I always wondered why there was such a big deal about us being in the States and why some people had to leave out the back door of the detention center while the rest of us had to wait there to get paroles. And then I remember deciding to become a storyteller and focusing on the stories of Latinos specifically, because I feel like we are such a special and um, an interesting mix of races. You know, in my family, there are some people who have the last name Chow because they're Cuban Chinese. And there's others who are Rosenthal's because they are also Cuban Jewish. And then there are others like my family, which are Taino, African, from Galicia. And some of us are a little whiter than others. Others are more brown. Others are black. And we're still all part of the same family. And for me... That is what makes us rich and unique in our own way, but it's also what has separated us for so long because we've tried for so long to, to tell the story of one kind of people. And in the end, we're just all just trying to make it and trying to survive and trying to love each other. And 
anytime somebody asks me where I'm from, I always say I'm Cuban. Then I always say, you know, that my culture represents me because it has, even though I've been out of a dictatorship for 20 years. And also as, as a journalist, it represents who I am because these are the kinds of stories I want to tell. As a journalist, I want to help women who are Latinas find and rediscover themselves uh, sexually, pushing aside all of the taboos, pushing aside all of those things that once uh, constrained us. But also as a person, I think it's something that I always want to pass down. I want my children to grow up knowing that their identity is a bunch of different things, that they're not just one thing. Because I've never felt like I was just one thing. I've always felt like I was, you know, una raza encendida, negra, blanca y taina. But like Juan Luis Guerra says, who discovered who? All right, sit tight as we take a quick break because capitalism is real. We still have another ad for you. Stick around. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at And we're back with more beautiful messages from y'all. This next voice memo comes from someone who wanted to share their experience being from two very different cultural backgrounds. Marina didn't see many people who looked like her when she was a kid. Her father's Italian and her mother is Salvadorian. Growing up in Orange County, California, she said it was like being in a red bubble within a blue state. So she did her best to fit in. For a long time, I was confused about what I was because my sister and I are what I like to call ethnically ambiguous. We have light tan skin that gets really dark in the summer. I have green eyes. My sister has golden eyes. And we both have dark chestnut hair. I remember in elementary school, I had a group of Filipino friends. And after much debate and discussion, we decided that I must be half Filipino. It was the only thing that made sense. I was so relieved at that point that I started to tell everyone that I was Filipino. Until one day my mom overheard and she quickly corrected me. She said, no, 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 you're Salvadoran. That was the whole conversation. I was very young and even more confused. Like, where's El Salvador? And why don't I know anyone from there? A few years later is my 13th birthday, and my grandmother, my father's mom, agreed to take me to get my ears pierced. I was very excited, so we drove to the mall because we didn't get to spend a lot of one-on-one time together. So in Orange County or Southern California, agriculture used to be a major part of the economy. So there were large fields with day workers that lined the freeways. My grandmother pulled over the, off the road next to one of the fields and pointed at the field workers and said, look, 
those are your people. If your mom hadn't married your father, you'd be out there working too. You're so lucky to be part of this family. And then we drove off like nothing happened. I didn't say anything, but I was hurt and confused. Like somehow we weren't good enough for her son. Marina, I'm sorry. That sucks. After this unfortunate event with her grandmother, Marina paid closer attention to her mother's behavior. She noticed that she never heard her speak Spanish. She even asked her once why she didn't have Hispanic friends, since many of her friends were white, and her mother got angry when she asked the question. She told Marina that she wasn't Hispanic. And soon, Marina learned that this word Hispanic was actually a dirty word in their house. When Marina got to her senior year in college, she began to wonder more about her Salvadorian roots. She went on to become a professional swimmer. In fact, she is currently training to be in the 2024 Olympics in Paris, y'all. We got Olympians listening to this show. And she wants to represent El Salvador. But there was one issue. She didn't have a Salvadorian passport. Shit, I thought. I don't have a passport. I don't even know how to get one. And thus started the eight-year-long search for my family. In that time period, I missed going to the 2016 Olympics. I gave up for a few years and taught English as a second language. Came back to swimming. Swam at the U.S. Olympic trials in 2021. I finished 43rd and 46th. I figured I'd just retire from swimming and be done altogether. But for some reason, I couldn't quite quit. I decided I would give it one more go and find my grandfather so I could get my passport. Spent hours and hours looking at ancient handwritten Spanish birth certificates, looking for my grandfather's name. All I knew was his birthday and his parents' names. I didn't even know which city he was born in. There are many nights when I cried and I thought of giving up. One day, last May, I told myself that this was the last day of searching. I was done endlessly scrolling and paying for online subscriptions to Ancestry sites. So today was my last day. After a few fruitless hours, I told myself one more page. I couldn't keep going. And then, obviously, as fate always has it, I clicked on the next button. And there popped up my grandfather's name in a very distinct, loopy cursive. I'm pretty sure my heart actually stopped. I immediately took a screenshot and sent it to the consulate in L.A. and asked if this was sufficient evidence to get my birth certificate. And they said yes. So it took about a year from when I sent them that initial screenshot for me to get my passport. And from right now where I'm recording this, I actually got my passport yesterday. I went to the consulate and did the whole thing. It was a little anticlimactic. I did it by myself and my family isn't here to celebrate with me, but it is a huge moment for me and my family and the start of healing a lot of trauma and recognizing who we are. Now I'm able to compete for El Salvador in the upcoming Central American and Caribbean games in June. And I'm super excited, but it also comes with a lot of doubt and a little bit of an identity crisis. Am I Salvadoran enough to be able to represent this country? My Spanish isn't great. It honestly is pretty elementary. I can get by. I know a lot of phrases that I've memorized, but holding a conversation is really hard for me. Um, so yeah, I'm going into this kind of scared, but I've spent so much of my life wanting this moment to happen that I'm excited for what's about to unfold in front of me, and I feel like this is just the beginning of the whole journey, 
And I'm very, very excited to dive into this community and find more support and more people like me to connect with and to share my story with. So thank you for letting me share my story. I love Brown Enough and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Congrats, Marina, and I wish you the best of luck. I hope to see you at the Olympics next year. Uh, Maybe in person, probably not. Uh, But mainly, I hope to see you winning a gold medal. Desiree had heard me on another podcast I hosted, Man Enough, where I also talked about brownness and identity and navigating spaces between black and white. Something I said brought up these memories and thoughts for herself. I was triggered by your comment these memories started flooding in once I heard this comment that you made about brownness sometimes having an option of whether they lean into their brownness or their blackness or if they lean on whiteness and power and opportunities, you know, avoiding hardships and paving a path to success. And as a light-skinned Latina, I have unknowingly mastered this. I can actually recall the first time the choice was made for me, you know, as the only white looking girl on my block, me with light brown hair, rosy cheeks, and my mom blonde with green eyes. You know, the only time you would ever suspect I was Latina was when I stood beside my Spanish speaking father, who actually kind of, I think, looks a lot like you. Um, so... I was raised in the South Bronx where the majority of its population was English-speaking Puerto Ricans or Afro-Dominicans, and I was a total anomaly. So naturally, the kids at the playground and at school will point this out. They would say things like, ew, her hair is mad dead, Um, because I had like really straight brown hair. And I just thought of one that recently just made me crack up. Um, This girl had yelled in the park that this white girl is broken when she was, you know, making a reference to the fact that I didn't speak English, but looked white. Um, well, that was the first time I felt rejection amongst my own people. That plus my parents reinforcing the superiority that the white people possessed, that they're smart, they're decent, they're good people. Latinos, on the other hand, bullosos, desordenados, maleducados, you know, loud, disorganized, poorly educated. Blanket statements that as long as we weren't these things, we could help change the mind of our white bosses, that we were the exception. My parents, you know, they instilled in me a very submissive approach to authority, especially if they were white. If they were white, they were right. The more we could blend in with them, the more of a chance we had to live the American dream. And of course, as a five, six-year-old, these things don't really make sense, but they live inside of you. Then your little white Latina self experiences a white park and everything starts to make more sense. You start recognizing where you belong. Here, the girls had my hair, their cheeks would fluster like mine. And while I still spoke my broken English, they paid no mind to it. I knew that, you know, in order to have friends to play with, I would need to do whatever I could to get these kids to keep liking me, to keep accepting me. So for those brief hours, 
I was white. I blended in seamlessly. And for those brief hours, I finally felt enough. Now, you don't really realize how these little moments, the conversations you overhear your parents have, shape you and shapes the path you choose as you navigate life. The only fear I I had was losing the safety net of acceptance. And so I did nothing to compromise my safe haven, which, you know, included changing the way I spoke. Apparently, the dead giveaway of the brown roots still left in me was with my accent. I remember walking into a casting call and an agent, um, a, a casting call that an agent had set up for me. And after doing a three-minute monologue, one of the casting directors, an older white male, asked me to do it again, but to speak normally. I was like so confused. I gave him a puzzled look and he quickly repeated, like, speak normal, like, like, like you're white. You can't, (laughs) you can't look like Katie Holmes and speak like Rosie Perez, speak with an American accent, which he, he then realized my English wasn't part of my bit. So even then he unapologetically said, if I want to succeed in the business, I can't confuse people. Me going in for Latina parts wouldn't work. So the only solution was going in to a speech coach. He wrote and underlined twice. Come back when you have, um, when you can do a standard American accent. There, the first time a white person looked at me in the eye and said I was not enough. So naturally, I took a six-week speech coach and perfected my standard American accent. I went back to audition, honing in on my like best DJ Tanner accent, and the agent signed me on the spot. Well, I would soon find myself getting callbacks for Disapproving White Girl, which ironically was a short student film um, about a Latina girl dating a white guy. But I played, you know, Disapproving White Girl. And then White Young Female. Um, and then... Uh, even like as I got older, single white mother, white, white, white. (laughs) So when I married my first husband, my mom insisted I take his name, his very white last name, not because my mom was traditional, but because of, you know, she said becoming Desiree, insert a very white last name would mean I could probably go unnoticed, which is a very common fear when you've been an illegal immigrant at some point in your life, and your family survival is dependent on your fitting in, blending in, not disturbing, not letting anyone see you as a bother, or in this case, too brown. My taking his last name would literally erase the very last thing that would get people to stop, look, and assess that I don't add up. Deciré Carolina Hidrogo Serpa has a story. And that story is, huh, like maybe brown, maybe beige. We don't know, but it's certainly a conversation starter. While Desiree Watts, no questions asked. (laughs) Now, as a mother of two little half-brown babies, I am now impassioned to seeking to honor my culture, embrace my heritage, transfer the beauty and the perseverance that is in my brown blood. 
embrace the unique experiences that being brown in America has taught me. Learn to dance salsa. Oh my gosh, I missed out on that. A rite of passage that was stolen from me as my parents didn't take me to party with Latinos or even played Latin music at home. We weren't that type of Latino family. So these were just some of the memories that came to the surface and I can, you know, only start remembering, honoring these experiences that have shaped me and continue to educate myself and connect with myself on ways I can embrace the beautiful brown that is in me. Thank you, Desiree. Keep embracing your beautiful brown self. You have to. Anybody who sent us something that didn't make it on this episode, uh, blame Stitcher for not having more episodes. I'm kidding. Uh, I love you. It just <laughs> like uh, your stories are valuable and important and we love you and we need you to keep telling your stories. Uh, keep embracing your beautiful brown self, all of you. Thank you for all your beautiful messages, for all your support, for all your time, for all your love. Uh, I hope this is a space of belonging. I hope you find more spaces of belonging. Keep telling your story. Love and blessings. I'm out. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher Studios. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabriela Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Thanks. Peace and love. <laughs>